Can you play it on the radio? Yeah. I'm going to play it to myself. I just like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> so, so let's start with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of creation. We thank you for ourselves as human persons, as creating us in the image of God. We ask you, please, to be with us tonight as we learn about your plan for humanity, as we learn about the ways in which you created us so that we can grow closer to you in that knowledge. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So, here's the plan. Three Nights of Adult Ed. Tonight is on the creation of humanity um, as relational beings. Next week is a presentation from the Domestic Violence Center on healthy relationships. What do those look like? And then the third week will be on the sacrament of marriage in particular. um, Because all three are relational. They're just hitting it from different aspects. The anthropological aspect, the uh, psychological aspect, and the sacramental aspect. So that's what we're doing in this series. If we wanted to understand why this is important, somebody once said, and I haven't tracked it down, but it's been told to me and it rings true, most of Western history has been marked by debates about the nature of God. Is there one God? Are there many gods? Who is God? Is Jesus God? Is, is God loving? Is he good? Are there two gods, good and evil God? That's Manichaeism. We don't want to be them. Um, all of these things. It was a debate about God. But in the modern and contemporary periods, the debate turned from God to humankind. Now, when you think about what we yell at each other about, what we disagree about, It's very little about the nature of God, and it's a whole lot about the nature of humankind. Um, Who is the human being? What is the nature of our freedom? What is the nature of our choices? What is moral for a human being? We actually didn't have a lot of debates about morality in the ancient and medieval world, because most people generally agreed on the lines of morality. There were some very important differences between Christianity and paganism, but a lot of things were still the same. Today, we have a lot of debates about morality. We have a lot of debates, especially about sexuality, which is a question of anthropology. Who created man, or is man created at all? What is his nature, right? And so tonight, it's going to be straight-up anthropology. We're going to be talking about how did God create us, why did he create us, and what does that mean for relationships and relationality and marriages and sexuality. Cool? All right. We have a Bible because, right, very good, We get our anthropology mostly, primarily, from the book of Genesis and then some stuff in the New Testament, which we may or may not talk about. But we're going to talk about the book of Genesis tonight. Before we do that, we have to place the book of Genesis because we live in a Protestant country where fundamentalists are the only ones who get on the news. So we have to talk about how we as Catholics understand the book of Genesis. The Bible is a library. Every book is different. Every book is part of a genre. Every book has a different purpose for existing. The book of Genesis, the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, are clearly in the genre of mythology. Now, when I use the word mythology in English, that means something slightly different than what we think of it meaning. Most of the time when we hear myth, we think a made-up fictional story. But technically, mythology as a genre is truth told through symbolic language. And so Genesis 
is absolute truth, right? It is the word of God. It is a revelation of God. It is given to us, and it is a sure truth. We can believe Genesis. But we have to understand how Genesis gives us that truth. It gives us truth through symbols, through a symbolic system. So you have to understand how to read that symbolic system to understand the truth that God is trying to convey to us. So unlike our fundamentalist brothers and sisters, when Genesis says that God created things in six days and rested on the seventh day, we do not believe that Genesis was intending to tell us about 24-hour periods, right? That would be a fundamentalist reading of the Bible, a very almost overly literal reading of the Bible. For us, a day is simply a period of time, right? God created certain things in a certain order in a period of time, and that's wonderful, right? And that's great. But we don't focus so much on 24 hours. We focus on this is the truth given to us. Similarly, in the creation accounts, right? God created human beings. That's the truth that's intended. And the way Genesis talks about that, we have to look at what symbols are being used, what's important about the creation account in the eyes of the Genesis author. Especially because there are two creation accounts. And we have to reconcile those two, right? In one of them, God creates it in seven days, and so on and so forth. The second one is Adam and Eve. It doesn't necessarily conflict with the first creation account, but there are two different symbolic systems being used, and we have to read them according to their own categories. So, we are going to go through the two creation accounts, not line by line. We don't have to talk about the first five days, really. We need to talk about the sixth day. Um, But when it talks about the creation of humankind, and we are going to talk about the symbols that Genesis is using to explore that truth, to talk about that truth, and what that can tell us about the human person. Cool? All right. Now, for those of us who just joined us, if you want a Bible, I have a whole box of them in the back. And we are going to go over the biblical text. So, we are in Genesis 1 which is not actually the first page of your Bible because we have all of these introductions and whatever, but Genesis 1, which is the first page of Scripture. And we are going to do Genesis 1, 26. Genesis 1, 26. Okay? I'll give you a moment in case it's been a while. I wish I knew. We have all these different versions of the Bible. On my Bible, it's page 4. But it should be the first book of the Bible, the first page of the first book of the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 26. And I will read it out loud to you, but I just want you to be able to follow along if you want it. Excellent. All right, here we go. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the cattle, and over all the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground. God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we'll stop there and go on to the the other stuff later, okay? So, what are the most important things here, right? What are the things that the Genesis account is trying to emphasize? The very first thing... And it is emphasized three times. It is mentioned first in this account, and it is repeated twice. And in Hebrew poetry, the repetition is how you know what's important. They'll often repeat things. In this case, it's reversed, right? The subject and the object are reversed, or the subject and the predicate are reversed. 
Um, but in like the Psalms, they repeat things and use different words, synonyms. This is how the Hebrews emphasize things. So the fact that this appears three times is important. And what appears three times is that God, let, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In our image after our likeness. This is incredibly important because this is the first statement of anthropology in the Bible. And we would say the most important statement of anthropology in the Bible. If we're trying to understand who the human person is, we have to start with the fact that we are created in God's image. Now, what does that mean? That's a hard question. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Certainly, God is not flawed, sinful. He's not diseased. There are a lot of things that we possess that God does not possess, right? What is it about us and about God that is the same? What is it about us that is created in the image of God? A lot of different answers to this question. Okay, one very simple basic answer is that we were created good. So Catholic anthropology is very clear that at our core we are good. We are in accord with God. Protestant anthropology will say, and this is where the anthropological debate started, right? Why we started debating about man. But Protestant anthropology, traditional Protestant anthropology, will say that at the fall, when Adam and Eve fell from the garden, that goodness was corrupted entirely. That at our core, human beings are evil. um, And that we regain goodness through Christ. But that goodness either covers up our core of evil, or it, it somehow causes God to ignore it. Right? Whereas Catholics would say, at the fall, that goodness was not wiped away. That at our core, we are good. We have evil attributes, that sin did corrupt us, and we have parts of us that are corrupted. But at our very core, that image of God was never lost. That we still remain in the image of God. And so, when we look upon each other, we are looking upon an image of God. And this is so fundamental for our morality as well. right? If we are going to treat people well, we have to do so for a reason... The reason is because they are created in the image of God. When we look upon the person, we look upon the image of God. Now, there's another part of image that we're going to get to in a second. But before we get there, there's some intervening verses about what man is supposed to do. What is the purpose of man? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the cattle, and over all the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground. So we talk about this statement, man is the pinnacle of creation. Man, and again, we're speaking in English. When I say man, that is a gender-neutral term traditionally in English. I mean man and woman, and I don't want to say that over and over again, so I'm going to do this. But man is created as the pinnacle of creation. He has dominion over all of the other creation. But because we are in the image of God, we do so in the image of God. So in the Catholic Church, we talk about stewardship. We do so responsibly. We have responsibility for the earth responsibly. And when we have dominion, we are participating in the creative nature of God. So in Genesis here, with the creation account, we have already seen that God is a creator. So what is part of the image of God? Being a creator is part of the image of God. And so God created us to participate in his creative nature. And a significant way we do that, you'll probably want a Bible because we're doing the biblical text. A significant way we do that is by having dominion over all of the creatures of the earth. 
by using them for our food, for our sustenance, by ensuring that God's creation is well maintained. Back pew. So, that's another way we're in the image of God. But this is, I think, the more important way we're in the image of God. We're in Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him, right? That repetition is so important. But then, and this is the way Hebrew poetry works, they will add information. But that added information is seen as an extension of the information that came and a repetition of it. And so the third line there is male and female, he created them. And so the Hebrew writer of this is not seeing that line as some new information. They're seeing it as an extrapolation, as adding on to the first two lines. And so here Genesis is very clear that male and female is part of the divine image. That somehow being male and female tells us more information about what it means to be created in the divine image. And so step one, right, as Catholics... We believe that male and female is on purpose. God doesn't make mistakes about that. That male and female is on purpose. It is part of our creation on purpose. It is not part of our corrupted nature, but it is part of our intentional nature. Similarly, right, we have to ask the question, well, God is pure spirit. God has no body. Now, he took to himself a body, but that body is his human nature. Jesus is human nature. It is not part of the divine nature. And Genesis is very clear. We were created in the divine image. So somehow, male and female have to be part of the divine image, even though God doesn't have gender. God is not male and female. So how do we get our minds around that? John Paul II gave us a great gift when he gave us something called the theology of the body. He did Wednesday audiences starting in 1979 about Genesis, about creation, about male and female. This is where I'm getting a lot of this information from seminary. But I believe the way he talked about it, and if he didn't, my seminary professor was just brilliant. But God, we learned later through Jesus and because God is love, God exists in relationship. God exists in relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we talk about one God and three persons, a person is something that isn't in relationship. Only a person can be in relationship. And so, insofar as God is love, insofar as God has to be in relationship because love only exists in relationship, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have a relationship amongst themselves. And so somehow, being male and female allows us to image the relational nature of God. The fact that God is a relationship is lived out in the fact that we are male and female. Now, when the church talks about the fact that male and female are different, we don't go super deep into that question because we don't want to play the gender roles game where we're like, well, women have to stay at home and run the kitchen and whatever, right? We don't play that game. We do say that they're different, and we'll talk more about that. But we will absolutely say that they live out that relationship. And one of the things that some theologians will say, and we can't get too carried away with this, but I'm going to say it, In the relationship of the Trinity, if you talk about the relationship between those three persons, one of the articulations is that God the Father is the lover, God the Son is the one who is loved, and God the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between them. Bond of love between them. 
So, one of the ways that this gets lived out in gender, and again, we don't want to take this too far, but it is an interesting analogy, is that there is kind of giving and receiving in the biology of male and female, right? That's why, for example, if you're talking about electrical plugs, right, there is a, a male and a female, right? We talk about that with our electrical plugs. We can talk about it with our humanity as well, because that's where it's given from, right? But in a sense, the fact that there is a giving and a receiving in our biology mirrors the fact that in the Trinity there is also a giving and a receiving, right? Now, we don't want to take that too far, because that's only biological. But it is something to think about. It is something to think about that every relationship has an aspect of giving and an aspect of receiving. And a healthy relationship, and hopefully the Domestic Violence Center will talk about this next week, a healthy relationship, both people are both giving and receiving. Right? Giving and receiving. And that's what we're imaging in relationship. The giving and receiving nature of the Trinity. The giving and receiving nature of God. Okay? Now, that's not dogmatic. That's just an analogy that might be helpful. What is dogmatic is that we are created male and female. That is part of God's plan for us. And it somehow images the divine nature. That we are male and female is intended by God. And it helps us be an image of God in the world. So let's move on. This is Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on the earth. God also said, See, I give you every seed-bearing plant all over the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food. And to all the animals of the land, all the birds of the air, and all the living creatures that crawl on the ground, I give all the green plants for food. And so it happened. God looked at everything he made. He found it very good. Evening came and morning followed the sixth day. Now that didn't add a lot of information to what we've already talked about. But what it did add was that line, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Again, Hebrew poets repeat things to emphasize them. Be fertile and multiply. Now, this comes immediately after the line, male and female, he created them. So, again, anthropology of the, of the human person. God created us male and female, and he intended us to be fertile and multiply. Those are not disconnected ideas, right? Again, like I said, giving us dominion over the earth is because part of the divine image is a created image. And so, similarly, we are intended to be creative, not just by having dominion over the earth, but also by being fertile and multiplying. We were created to have children, right, through our biology. And that's part of how we were created. That's part of the divine image, is that ability to create life, which is the sole dominion of God. Only God can create life from nothing. We have been given the ability to participate in that godly attribute by being able to create life, right? And again, it's not... It's not by accident that comes right after male and female. Because one of the effects of God creating us male and female is that we can be fertile and multiply. That the union of male and female creates a new person. Right? That's on purpose. The other interesting thing, this doesn't actually add a lot to anthropology. In this creation account, we are only given plants to eat. So theologically aware vegetarians will point this out. They will say, look, before the fall, we were all vegetarian." After the fall, with the covenant with Noah, is when God said we could eat animals too. So, unfortunately, if a vegetarian makes that argument, they're not wrong. But we do live in a fallen world, 
And God said, we can eat animals, and so as long as I'm sinful, I'm going to eat the animals, right? They taste so, so good. <clears throat> I think they owe it to us because we saved them on the ark, right? That's why we got to eat them after Noah. So, questions about Genesis 1. All right. I have to fill a whole hour and a half, so if I get through Genesis 2 and you don't have any questions, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> Actually, probably Genesis 2 and 3. There's a lot to go on here. All right, we'll get there. I'll, I'll convince you in time that you have to ask me questions for this to be a really interesting class. <clears throat> Second creation account is Adam and Eve. Okay, Slightly different creation account, coming from two different places. So... The first creation account, according to my Old Testament professor, is actually modeled off of a Babylonian creation account. The Hebrews did not create this out of nothing. The Babylonians had a creation account that already existed that was divided into, I think they had 12 days rather than 7, and that looked kind of like this. What the Hebrews did, because they this was probably written during the Babylonian captivity, they took the Babylonian creation account and they changed it to reflect their understanding of God. The Babylonian creation account happens through chaos and through fighting of deities, right? There's the dragon god and other gods, and they fight with each other, and that's how the world is created. And the Hebrews were like, you're done. We're going to take your creation account. We're going to use the same structure, the same language, but we're going to show you what's up, right? And what's up is there's one god who existed before creation who created everything from nothing. And they were very careful in the way that they named the things during the days of Genesis 1, that they all named them inanimately. They wouldn't use the names that were used for, like, the moon god to describe the moon. So they made it very clear that God created all of the gods that were listed in the Babylonian account, because all of the days kind of match gods in the Babylonian account. God created all of their puny gods, and their puny gods are just inanimate objects. They're not actually gods, right? So that's kind of where Genesis 1 comes from. Genesis 2, I haven't heard a great explanation for where it comes from, um, if it's modeled off of anything. I'm not sure. But it's a separate creation account, talking especially about anthropology. But I'm going to jump to... <coughs> excuse me, getting over a cold. Um, I'm going to jump to Genesis 2, verse 18. Because that's where we really get into anthropological questions. Genesis 2, verse 18 says... The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner for him. Yeah, nice, right? So again, divine image, relational. God is a relationship in himself. If we are in the divine image, we are created to be in relationship. And so God recognizes this. He knows this because he created us. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner for him. That's a, just a very basic statement. We are, not exist, we are not created to be alone. That's important. So, what did God do? Verse 19. So the Lord God formed out of the ground various wild animals and various birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each of them would be its name. Again, dominion over the earth, pinnacle of creation. The man gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, and all the wild animals, but none proved to be the suitable partner for the man. Right? This is important. Animals are not people. Animals are not people. Despite what the theologically informed vegetarian may say, animals are not people. Okay? 
and this is important, and this is a recognition right there in Genesis of our human nature. Animals are great. We have dominion over the animals. They can be pets. They can be playmates. But they are not suitable partners. We are made to be in relationship with other people. So, if somebody says that it's okay that you don't have any grandparents. I have grand puppies. You can just just look at them and shake your head. It's my my. This happens a lot in in. My generation, especially, they're like, people just don't want to have kids, but they have dogs, right? And they expect their parents to be like, look, dogs are the same, right? You have all these grand puppies that you can visit. And the parents are like, what? Who are you? What is this? Clearly, you have not read Genesis 2. So, 21. This is where it gets really interesting. Now, up until this point in Genesis 2, I don't read Hebrew. But my Hebrew professor told me that there's an argument to be made that up until this point in Genesis 2 that the reference to the human being is gender neutral. That it's just kind of... um, uh, Is there an equivalent in Spanish? I don't know. In in Latin, there are two words for man. There's homo homies, which is a gender neutral term for humankind. And then there's vir viris, which is a man or a male. Right? I think... Yeah, I don't know what the equivalent in Spanish would be. But in Hebrew, I believe there are those two terms as well. And I believe up until this point it's gender neutral, right? The man at least is not named until we get down here, right? He's not called Adam until we get down here. So, verse 21. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man. And while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built up into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man. When he brought her to the man, the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of her man this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. The man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. There is so much to unpack here. I believe John Paul II took like multiple months to unpack just this spot here. It's so theologically dense. Again, we have to remember this is a symbolic system. So the rib doesn't matter so much, right? It's just a natural human observation that the men seem to have one fewer ribs. That is true, right? Like I've never actually felt the ribs of a woman, so I wouldn't know. But um, men do have one fewer rib biologically, right? So... um, that's just an observation on behalf of... What? You're laughing at me. That's not nice at all. Um, it is a general observation that men have one fewer rib than women, right? And so the author of Genesis is like, let's just put that detail in. That sounds like a good way to build my creation account. But the Catholic Church doesn't look at that and say, that's why, that's why there's one fewer rib. It has nothing to do with genes, right? It's because God did this. That's just not, that's just not how we look at it, right? Um, it was an observation by the human author, and it was a nice way to have this. What's important, though, is that line, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, doesn't matter that it's a rib. It does matter that it's identical creation, that it's the same stuff, because it shows us the natural and inherent and intentional equality and dignity of both parties. They are the same. They are made of the same stuff. And John Paul II puts a lot of emphasis on the gaze. 
This is verse 22, 23. When he brought her to the man, the man said, this is this one at last. Now that at last is not like an English edition. That is part of the original text. This astonishment, this astonishment at seeing the woman. You have to imagine, right? Now again, the reason I mention the gender neutral thing is because some theologians will say, like, in Genesis 2, it is at this moment that they're divided into man and woman. Before that, it was just kind of this androgynous desire, or this androgynous idea of mankind. I don't care one way or the other, really. Um, it doesn't really matter for what we're learning about humankind. What matters, though, is that at last, at last, because imagine a human person without any other human persons, right? Imagine being in, in the Garden of Eden, and you just have animals, and you realize that none of them are a suitable helpmate. And then you finally see another human person, right? That alone is astonishing. At last, somebody who is the same, somebody who is like me, somebody who is made of the same stuff. But at this point, Genesis is very clear that they are gendered, that there is male and there is female. And so that at last is not just looking at the sameness, but it's looking at the differences, not only are you seeing another human person, but you're seeing somebody who is both the same and different at the same time. And that should fill anybody with astonishment. Look, here's somebody who's just like me, but also completely different from me. That should make us incredibly curious, incredibly interested, incredibly inspired. Somebody who is the same but different. That's beautiful, and that astonishment is so important. There is nothing more important in this anthropology than that astonishment between man and woman. Because it's not just that God created us to be in relationship in sort of a functional platonic way, right? We're also in relationship in, this would be kind of the first example of a romantic way, right? In a way where you are astonished by the person in front of you. Somebody who is the same but different, right? That's the goal. And, by the way, I'm cheating with this talk because I'm also giving a similar talk to the 7th and 8th graders at the school next week. So, like, all the research was the same, and I'm very happy with double dipping. That's called priestly efficiency. You're welcome. <laughs> but when young children talk about relationships, this is the language that we have to use with them. is curiosity. Because the rest of the culture right now is telling them when they have that feeling of astonishment, when they first have that as they're maturing, they're told that's a sexual feeling. That means you just want to bang the other person, right? That's what they're told as children, right? It's not true. It's not accurate, right? What they're feeling originally is astonishment, which is not inherently genital. It doesn't have to be genital right off the bat, right? It's curiosity. It's astonishment. And that astonishment is spiritual. It's intellectual. It's emotional. And yes, it is biological, but it's not foundationally biological. It's foundationally entirely human to look at somebody who is the same but different and say, that's interesting. I want to know more about that. I want to get to know a person of the other sex because they're fascinating. Right? That's very natural. And we have to help young people to understand that's not automatically a sexual thing. 
That's something that you could explore with a conversation. Wouldn't that be nice, right? A conversation. You could explore that by praying together, right? Because men and women are the same and different. We're praying to the same God, from the same human nature, but we might do so in different ways, right? Pray with another person. Explore their spirituality, right? Explore their emotional life. Explore their intellectual life. Get to know the ways that they're the same and the ways that they're different, right? That is not a genital thing. Our, our world can't think outside of their pants a lot of the time, right? And so these young people need another message. They need this message of astonishment. That's important. So hopefully I can do it with the 7th and 8th graders next week. We'll see. And then they finish up, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of her man this one has been taken. That's a Hebrew play on words. Um, the Hebrews really liked wordplay, puns and things. So we don't put a lot of like dogmatic emphasis on that line, particularly. Um, again, it's just going with the rib thing and the wordplay. It was a very cute way to tell a story in Hebrew. But then, interesting, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. Hmm. Interesting. Now, the... I shouldn't say the Greeks. Plato had a dialogue. Um, oh, shoot, I've forgotten what it is. It's a love feast. Um, I, I forget the name of the dialogue. I'm such a horrible priest. Um, but... Plato, very famous Greek philosopher, wrote uh, basically a play, but it was really a dialogue. It was meant to be read and, and read out loud. Um, that was a love feast, and it was all of these people offering different theories of what love was. One of the players in this dialogue tried to describe love by giving this creation. He said, at the beginning of time, or when we were created by the gods, or whatever, we were created as two people combined. You know, think four legs, four arms, two faces, right? Two people combined. And there were those who were two men who were combined, and those who were two women combined, and those who were a man and a woman combined. And then, the gods got mad at us for some reason. You know, we were probably trying to conquer Olympus or whatever. And they split us in half. And so love is us trying to find the other half that we were split from. Okay? Two interesting things here. One, it shows that this sort of progressive idea that we're the first generation in the world to absolutely accept and honor and, and sanctify homosexuality, not true. The Greeks got there way before them. And then Christianity was like, eh, that's not good anthropology. And then the Western world was like, okay. And then the 21st century happened and we're back. So it's actually a circle. It's not a line that's getting better and better over time. It's just history repeating itself. Point number two how many people have you heard tell that story without ever reading Greek philosophy, right? That's the idea of soulmates. Now, Christianity does not believe in soulmates. Sorry to say. We do believe in compatibility. We believe in the ability to love people for the rest of their lives. But we don't believe that somehow before all of creation, your souls were intertwined and then they were separated and you're coming back to each other, okay? Um, that's a very nice romantic notion. It is not part of our faith. It is part of the Greek faith, so if you want to be a pagan, you're welcome to it. Don't be a pagan. Final line. So we're in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife... Oh, sorry. I should, I should finish up verse 24. Clings to his wife, and the two have become one body. There is the idea of incompleteness, though. So we don't believe in soulmates, necessarily. But we do believe in this idea of incompleteness, right? Somehow, after that astonishment... 
where the man gazes the woman and says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I, I am astonished at the sameness and the difference. That natural curiosity, the natural impulse, has its culmination in the unity of man and woman. Right? It has a culmination. So we teach young people the relationship begins with that curiosity and that conversation and, and having a conversation together, going to the movies and praying together. Wonderful, right? But we also believe in the Christian faith that it, that relationship culminates in marriage. And marriage necessarily has a biological aspect to it. And the biological aspect is, in a sense, returning the rib to the man, right? In a sense. But again, the rib isn't theologically important. What matters is that that astonishment also has a longing to it. That astonishment also shows an incompleteness. Insofar as the man gazes the woman, says she's completely the same and she's completely different, and I'm attracted to that, I'm curious about that, and he's partly curious because he's missing something. He's partly curious because he realizes humanity exists in two forms. It exists in man and woman, and those forms are not the same. They're not the same. They cannot be reduced to each other. Right? No matter what we do as created human persons, we are either male or we are female. And as a male, I can never be a female. Or as a female, you can never be a male. Right? That's important. And so, there's an incompleteness there. There's a part of humanity that each of us is missing because we are not the other. Right? And so, that completeness is why the man leaves his father and mother and unites himself to the woman. Because he is looking for that completeness. Right? And they are unified in one body. That completeness is achieved emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and biologically. All together, right? And they become one unit. One unit. One body. That completeness is important. Now, we can, at the end of this, talk about the Catholic Church's teaching on celibacy and how I, as a celibate man and a celibate priest, can somehow also be complete, right? We'll get there. But... For now, the anthropology of Genesis is telling us this is the truth, right? This is how humanity was created. And this is why the man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. Final line, I don't want to blow over it, but it's not really essential for what we're talking about tonight. The man and his wife were both naked, and yet they felt no shame. Why do we feel shame when we're naked? Interesting question, right? If you think about it, if you think about cultures, not every culture, there are some cultures that do this a little differently, but most over the history of the world, what cultures decide need to be covered for the sake of modesty, right? It is generally, for women, the top and the bottom, and for men, the bottom. The reason is because those are the parts that are different from each other. They are different from each other. I don't have to cover my hand, because we all have, our hands are all the same shape, right? We all have the same looking hand, right? Um, but it's the sexual organs, right, and it's the boobs, which is also kind of a sexual organ, kind of, right? That's what has to be covered. And it has to be covered because it's what's different about us. And so this line in Genesis is especially emphasizing the fact that we were not ashamed of our differences, that our differences did not divide us, and they did not cause us to lust after each other. We'll get to that in Genesis 3. Um, but we weren't marked by sin. Right? So one of the reasons we cover these things is because we're ashamed of the fact that we're different. The other reason we cover them is because, marked by sin, rather than love and appreciation and astonishment, we have lust and domination. Right? And lust and domination is often oriented toward the sexual organs, which is why they are covered. 
Well, we felt no shame because we haven't been sinful yet. Sin causes us, to emphasize the differences, causes us to be divided. Sin causes us to lust. Sin causes us to desire to own and to control. This is saying at the beginning that was not so. We were able to exist completely with each other in peace, in harmony, without any sin, without any division from those differences, without any shame of the fact that we were different. Does that make sense? Now, questions about Genesis 2? Reflections, responses, statements for the good of the order. All right, we'll go to Genesis 3, but so help me, at the end of Genesis 3, if we don't have a discussion, I'm just going to stare at you awkwardly. Now, Genesis 3, the fall of man. I'm not going to go into the fruit or what that was or why it happened. Um, That's a different discussion. It is important for anthropology to understand what the fall is, how it affected creation. But this class is specifically on relationship, how we were created to be in relationship. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit the punishments. So that is Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and onward. Now... We have to be careful with language here. So I'll read the first verse and then I'm going to go back. Verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. On your belly shall you crawl and dirt shall you eat all the days of your life. Now, because you have done this, John Paul II, for my money, this is absolutely his best contribution to this discussion. And I believe it wasn't even a theology of the body. He wrote a later document um, called Mulieres Dignitatem, which means the dignity of women. And it was just a discussion on the dignity of women. And he talks about the punishments that we're going to talk about for the man and the woman real quick. But what he says is his interpretation is linguistically, this is not God causing a punishment. This is God recognizing the natural result of sin. So the Catholic understanding of evil is that God never causes evil. He allows evil for a greater good, and we can speculate what that greater good is. You know, For my money, he allows moral evil, which is evil that we can choose through free will, because he doesn't want to override free will ever for any reason. Free will is necessary to love. And if God were to override our free will, we wouldn't actually be free to love. And so love is a greater good than eliminating all moral evil. So that's why God allows moral evil. So similarly, when we sin, sometimes God allows us to feel the punishment of that sin. And theologically, the Catholic Church would generally say, original sin, the sin in the Garden of Eden, corrupted creation. It didn't just corrupt our souls, it didn't just give us original sin and concupiscence, but it also corrupted creation. Creation itself is flawed because of this, right? If you're ever mad because a mosquito got in your house, blame Adam and Eve. Generally, that's... You know, mosquitoes are just horrible creatures, and I blame sin for that. Okay. But similarly, right, natural evil, disease, um, untimely death, things like that, we would generally blame sin. St. Paul blames sin for the existence of death, for example, right? Death was not part of creation, and then we sinned, and death became part of creation. So God is not cursing the serpent Adam and Eve. He is recognizing in them the result of their sin. You have sinned, and this is what happens because you sinned. I'm not cursing you. I'm not causing this. 
I'm just naming for you what happened because of the sin. Okay? So for the serpent, again, this is kind of God naming the corruption of creation. Right? The serpent now has a rough life, he just crawls on his belly, right? He has a, it's rough being a snake, apparently. And God is just saying, look, you were a great, wonderful creature, and now you're not. Now you're a horrible creature that everybody hates. Sorry, you sinned, this is what happened. Right? This is what happens when you sin. It's not my fault, it's your fault, this is what sin does. <clears throat> Keep that in mind when we get to the man and the woman here, okay? So now Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. We can read this in multiple ways. I think the original meaning, which would be, say, the literal sense, the intention of the author, is just to name the natural relationship, right? We don't like snakes, and you have biblical reason to do so, right? You don't have any biblical reason not to like spiders, but you have every biblical reason not to like snakes. We don't like snakes. They harm us, right? They harm children who play near dens of snakes, right? We don't like snakes. God is naming them. Again, creation is corrupted. There's a reason why in the book of Revelation, in this idea of what will creation look like after the recreation. No, I'm sorry, it's not Revelation, it's Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, in his image of the, the recreated creation, the perfect creation, you have this image of the lion lying down with the lamb, right? That's creation restored. That's creation where there's no enmity between anything, between humanity or any animal. There's no enmity between any animal, right? That's perfect creation as it was intended to be. But because sin has entered the world, creation is cursed. But not cursed by God. This curse, quote-unquote, happens because of sin. Sin causes this corruption. And so now there's enmity between humanity and the snake. Now, that's the literal sense. The Old Testament and the New Testament, everything points to Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle of all creation. And so there is a reason that over time these began to be read in light of Jesus. Because God is really, really, really smart. And he's so smart that he can talk about more than one thing at one time, right? And so the Bible is such a beautiful document because it's the word of God, it's the revelation of God. But that inspiration is seen through the fact that the Bible is so multi-layered. It talks about itself. It talks about itself in ways that the original author wouldn't have even have known, right? God is playing 3D chess. God is playing this game that we can't comprehend. And so this passage can be talking about creation in general, and it can be talking about Jesus. And, and, and that's fine, Jesus and the devil, right? It can be talking about both things. <clears throat> As Catholics, we read the literal sense first. We have to be grounded in the literal sense. What did the author mean? I think the author is probably intending first and foremost to talk about creation here. But there are also spiritual senses. And one of the spiritual senses of Scripture is, how does this point to Jesus well, it points to the fact that now, you know, there is a woman, and there is her offspring, and they are opposed to the devil, and they will fight with the devil, right? And that's okay. It's a secondary sense, though. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. Now, Catholic point of trivia, almost every uh, statue of Mary, she will have her heel on the serpent, okay? That's because earlier translations said... He will strike at your head. I'm oh, sorry, where is it? Um, the he will strike at your head. The he is referring to her offspring. Um, previous translations will say she, 
will strike at his head, right? It it was just kind of a a weird translation thing that I think got into Jerome's version of the Bible. And so a lot of people were reading this in the feminine, and they were thinking, oh, it's Mary who strikes at the serpent's head. And so that became part of our statue art. And then in the Renaissance period, when we really got serious about the literal text and, like, what is the original Hebrew and, and do we have good manuscripts of the original Hebrew... We saw that, that the translation a lot of people had been using, they got the gender wrong, and so that kind of changed the meaning for a lot of people. Um, that's why it's important to know the original text and have a, a trustworthy translation. Right? We are not King James-only people, because that's not a great translation. Even the NAV is a better translation than King James. So, that's why we have that. It's just a little Catholic trivia, but, but I think the, the prophecy is so much better when we realize... It's talking about the offspring of the woman striking at the serpent because it is Christ that defeats the devil. Okay. Verse 16. To the woman he said, Bob, yes, question, thank you. What is the definition of the meaning of the word enmity? I would take it generally by its by its te- like, like normal English meaning of um, um, an adversarial relationship, just fighting with each other. But because I don't know Hebrew, I can't give you the right answer. The right answer would be to look up what that word is in Hebrew and then to look it up in a Hebrew Bible. Um, or, sorry, a Hebrew dictionary. Um, you don't have one of those? I actually don't have one of those either. I could do that in Greek. I could tell you what the Septuagint word is and look it up in Greek because I have competency in Greek. Um, if I had the right uh, Bible program, I could do this in Hebrew, right? There are, there are programs online, and I could probably do it for free online if I got really dedicated. Um, I'm not going to do a real-time demonstration because engineering school taught me that they always fail. Don't do a real-time demonstration. Um, but I can look it up later. I think that's a great question. And this is the right question to ask whenever you're doing a biblical text because there are nuances to these words that don't come forward in translations. We are bound to translations, which is too bad, because most of us don't have the luxury of learning Greek and Hebrew. But if you can, do, because it's incredible, it's important. And there are study Bibles. The NAB does an okay job with footnotes, but there are Bibles with a lot more footnotes, if you can find them, that will go into some of these more detailed things. Okay, verse 16. To the woman he said, and remember, he is naming the effect of sin, he is not cursing her. This is not God's desire, it's God simply naming what's happening. To the woman he said, I will intensify the pangs of your childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children, yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall be your master. (laughs) So this was John Paul II's incredibly important addition to this conversation. Because he said God is naming the effect of sin rather than causing something himself, we can now read this line, and he shall be your master, not as a prescription, not as a desire, but as the result of sin against we should fight, right? If it is a result of sin, we should try to eliminate it from creation as much as possible. And yet, God is naming this, right? And because the Domestic Violence Center is doing the talk next week, we have to name this very clearly in Catholic theology. Oh, not... Not all domestic violence, it does happen in both directions, but a good majority of domestic violence is the man committing violence against the woman, right? And that is named in the Bible, right? Your urge shall be for your husband, right? 
The fact that women are submissive to that type of violence is a psychological problem that the Domestic Violence Center will help us address, but is also a result of sin, right? The fact that this is the pattern that we observe, we are not observing creation as God intended it, we are, creation, we are observing creation marked by sin, right? And the fact that he shall be your master, again, John Paul II is telling us, not the desire of God. This is something that comes about by sin. The fact that men dominate women is a result of sin that we're trying to fight against. Now, I think I have enough time to talk about Ephesians when we're done. So we'll talk about Ephesians, which is the New Testament version that people will use of this and how to go about that. But for now, this is a result of sin. The childbearing one, I don't have a great explanation for you other than it shouldn't be painful to bring forth children, right? Children are beautiful. They are the plan of God. They are the result of us being gendered creatures who are told to be fruitful and multiply. They're participating in God's creation. That should not be a painful experience. It is, the author of Genesis is saying, yep, sucks that you live in a sinful world, sorry, right? Like, sin caused us. Um, that's the only explanation I have for you. Blame the devil. Or Adam and Eve, but, you know, they were forgiven over time, we think, so. We, or they're probably in heaven. <clears throat> To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat, cursed be the ground because of you and toil shall you eat its yield all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you as you eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you get bread to eat until you return to the ground from which you were taken. For you are dirt and to dirt you shall return. So, work. Work is participating in God's creation. Right? Work is participating in, in the dominion that God gave us over the earth. That should be joyful. It should be happy. Participating in society, building up society, should be wonderful. And yet, for so many of us, it's a drudgery. It's hard to get out of bed. It is very difficult. We don't enjoy what we do, right? You know, Genesis is using a farming analogy because there are a lot of farmers. But basically, it's saying, work sucks because of sin. It shouldn't. Work is dignified, it is from God, it is beautiful, and yet it sucks because of sin. And we're sorry. Right? So if you, ever, if you ever have a bad day at work, if you're ever frustrated, it's because of sin and we're sorry. Right? This is God, again, naming the results of sin. And I have the microphones on in the hall, so you can hang out there if you, could, if you keep on listening. Um, so, that's what's up with that. Okay? That's kind of where we're coming from with Genesis 3. So help me. Do you have any questions about Genesis 3? I can share a Yes, please. Oh, wonderful. So when you talked about, I always wonder, when it talks about, what number does it just read? Oh, curse is the ground because of you. So I was thinking it doesn't really connect, but like you said, it was because maybe most of them were farmers back then? Um... Yeah, so the question is about the line, cursed be the ground because of you, um, doesn't seem to connect. Again, I'm repeating this because I'm vain and I want it in the recording. Um, and it doesn't seem to connect. Um, is it because they're farmers? Again, we would say God is naming the result of the sin. And so we're saying that the ground is cursed because of the sin, which is just another way of emphasizing that creation itself is corrupted because of sin. It's not just our souls. It's not just our moral sense. But, but the entire earth was shaken. Creation was corrupted because of sin. Now, there are different ways to approach this. This is really the Augustinian approach, right? St. Augustine said, before we sinned, everything was perfect. 
everyone was in, like it was perfect, all the animals were perfect, everything was perfect, and then when we sinned, everything stopped. St. Irenaeus had a slightly different approach. He said that there was conflict in creation before the sin. There was conflict in creation before the sin, because conflict was necessary for growth. So, uh, Augustine believed that the prelapsarian man, is the fancy technological term, uh, theological term, prelapsarian man, before the lapse, before the fall, Prelapsarian man was perfect spiritually. That's Augustine. Irenaeus says prelapsarian man was still a spiritual child. And that God did put conflict in creation because the point of existing, the point of being created into the world, is that we would grow. And so there was conflict in creation. And so from the Irenaean perspective, not everything in creation that is a conflict is bad. Some of that could have been from the beginning and is intended for our growth. From the Augustinian perspective, everything that's in conflict is bad. Okay. Well, we would read that line kind of two different ways. From the Augustinian perspective, it's saying everything, like the entire earth, is cursed because of the sin. Everything that sucks in, on the earth is because of the sin. From the Irenean perspective, we would say, well, it's not referring to every conflict. It's referring specifically to work. Because we're going to use an agricultural analogy for what sucks about work, you know, we're not going to use an office analogy because they didn't really have cubicles back in, uh, well, this would be about 600, 700 BC. Um, they didn't really have cubicles, right? So we're going to use an agricultural analogy. Well, if you're talking about what sucks about agriculture, you're talking about the ground. And so that line is just a way to get our attention. Curse me the ground because of you, and then God, like, expands on it for two verses. You know, like, really, God? Like, I, I got it. You know, okay, sweat of my brow, thorns and thistles, blah, blah, you know. But it's, it's introducing that analogy. Does that help? Okay. Other questions? And thank you, youth minister, for understanding how awkward it is when nobody participates. She knows. Oh, now we're throwing our friends under the bus. I know, I'm sorry, and it's, I had to attend one of these presentations when I was in Mexico, um, and, and that was before my Spanish was as good as it is now, it's not great now. Um, so I understand what it's like to kind of sit in the pew and go, yeah, your energy's good and I'm picking up kind of the import, but there's a lot going on there. That's okay. You shouldn't be ashamed. Okay, fine. <clears throat> Ephesians. Ephesians 5. So now that's hard, because Genesis was the first book of the Bible. That's easy to find. Ephesians is pretty close to the end. It's after the Gospels, but it's before, like, the letter to James, or the letters of Peter, or Revelation. It's in the letters. It is immediately after, looks like, Galatians. And immediately before Philippians. Ephesians 5. Eventually it's going to be Ephesians 5, chapter 21. Now, this reading is put in the three-year lectionary. So, there is a chance to hear it on Sundays. But it's one of those few Sundays where I have a choice to do this reading or a different second reading. And they give me a choice because it's a hard reading and a lot of priests don't want to preach about it. 
And if you put this in your Mass, you have to preach about it. Otherwise, people are going to come up to you after Mass and yell at you. Right? You have to preach on this reading. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 21. Yeah, you would have been in Revelation by that point. (laughs) But we're not going to start with verse 21. We're going to start with chapter 5, verse 1. Because you have to understand the context in which this is. In fact, we could start with chapter 4 and chapter 4. Um, which the NAB has a nice, like, heading, daily conduct, or expression of unity. So this is what's called a moral code. There are two or three of these in the New Testament, um, where Paul is providing rules for everybody in every rule of life, every aspect of life, okay? It's kind of a common thing to do in the first century in these letters, it seems. And so, you know, the end of chapter 4, therefore putting away falsehood, speak the truth... Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with which you were sealed. All bitterness, fury, anger, shouting, and reviling must be removed from you. He's giving some general rules for life. Then we get to chapter 5. So be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love. As Christ loved us and handed himself over for us as a sacrificial offering to God for a fragrant aroma. Those two verses are incredibly important because they are the if you remember your 8th grade writing class, the topic sentence for chapter 5. They are the topic sentence. This is what Paul is talking about for the rest of chapter 5. Being imitators of God, as his beloved children, living in love, and modeling to each other Christ. Being Christ for each other. That's the whole point of this chapter. So, with that in mind, verse... 21, wives and husbands. It's rare that people pick this for their wedding. When they do, either they're awesome theologically or they're horrible theologically. And it's one or the other, and I have to check right before we do it. So, be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is head of the church. He himself the savior of the body. As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So also husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hates his own flesh, but rather nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now we can't stop there. There are more verses, and those are important. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul's just quoting Genesis. Hopefully you understand that. And then 32, this is a great mystery. But I speak in reference to Christ and the church. In any case, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and the wife should respect her husband. Now, Paul is super annoying. He's as annoying in English as he is in Latin as he is in Greek. He's just super annoying. 
He writes run-on sentences. He gets distracted. He is like the ADHD of the first century, okay? And it's rough because he gives us a lot of our theology. So we're like, oh, we think we understand theology, but Paul is like really messing us up right here. That's how the Protestant Reformation started. It's like, what does Romans mean? I don't know. That's even his most organized letter, okay? And still we couldn't agree on Romans. Even so, he messes it up at the end because by the end of it, we're not sure whether he's talking about men and women or whether he's talking about the church, right? Like, is he using the natural relationships of men and women in the first century to explain the relationship of Christ to the church? Or is he using the relationship of Christ to the church to explain how men and women should treat each other, right? He messes it up at the end, because at the end it sounds like he's using the natural relationships of men and women to explain the church. And that would make sense, because he's talking theologically, he's trying to explain the church, but it's also in a moral code, so he really is telling people how to act. He's just a mess, okay? So as Catholics, we do two things. One, we trust the tradition of the church. We trust 2,000 years of Christians struggling with exactly these words, right? It's very weird when you read a letter from 200 AD where people are, like, quoting the Bible, and you're like, wait, they had the Bible in 200 AD? Yeah, because it was written in, like, 70 AD, right? But it blows my mind every time, right? So anyway, they're struggling with exactly the same passage for 2,000 years. So we trust the conclusions the church has come to, okay? And we trust the tradition of the church to be just and to be accurate to God, okay? So the church has never supported domestic violence, and we never will, Right? This passage cannot be used to support that. However, let's talk about it. Step one, verse 21. A lot of people like to start with verse 22. Verse 21 is mutual. Be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul does talk about men and women, right? He does have a different section for husbands and for wives. But he starts with a mutual a mutual requirement to be subordinate to each other. Now, I don't have the Greek in front of me, but I'm going to trust the English translators here, hopefully not wrongly. seems to be that the same verb is used, right? So first, Paul says, be subordinate to one another, before he says, wives, be subordinate to your husbands, right? So that subordination has to be mutual before we can talk about the differences in sexes. Yes, Bob? Ah, good question. <clears throat> I have to look up the Latin and the Greek for that. Again, you're asking all of the right questions, and I did not come prepared. But you know where to find me. You also know where I live, and you can keep pushing me on this until I find an answer for you. <coughs> That's why you give priests rectories, so that you're always, they're always under your thumb. Right? I know where you live. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um... Yeah, I'll look up that word later. That's That would be a good word study. And I'm actually, it's my fault too, I'm sure we did that word study in seminary. Because we studied this passage, we took a whole class on this passage, and I'm sure we talked about the word, and I've just forgotten. There's a few other things There are, but man, I like to look smart. And right now, you know, it's all about appearances. Very vain. So again, it starts with mutual subordination. Be subordinate to one another... Out of reverence for Christ. Okay? So again, topic sentence. 
Chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and handed himself over for us as a fat sacrificial offering to God for a fragrant aroma. Right? So that's what he means. Out of reverence for Christ, he means live in love as beloved children because Christ loved us and handed himself over for us. So without doing a word study, I would say probably what is meant by subordinate is handing himself over for us as a sacrificial offering. And we mean that in marriage, right? Handing each other, right, handing myself, assuming I'm married hypothetically, right? Handing myself over to the other person out of imitation of Christ. So when we talk about the Christian marriage, and we'll talk about this, I'll probably do this again for the marriage class two weeks from now, but it's always good to reiterate. <clears throat> marriage images Christ. It's a sacrament. Every sacrament images Christ. Christ went to the cross for he went all the way to the cross to save us from our sins. So when Paul is telling us to imitate Christ, he is telling us to do that. He's telling us to go to the cross. And that's probably what he means by subordination. Go to the cross for each other. Right? Sacrifice yourself for the other person. And if you use that lens for the rest of this passage, it makes a lot more sense. Now, he uses two different images, um, of Christ and of the church. So we can go through them. For, so this is verse 23. For the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is head of the church. He himself the savior of the body. Now in what way is Christ head of the church? He's the first one to go to the cross, right? He's the head of the church insofar as the first one to go to the cross. Right? He images for us what we are supposed to do. When we imitate Christ, we are imitating a specific man at a specific time with specific actions. Okay? And so Christ is our head. He leads us by his life, by his teachings, by his example. Right? So if, if, if we're going to put anything on this line that says the, the husband is, is head of his wife, Jesus Christ is head of the church... It means that the husband, in order to be the head, and the only way in which he is the head, is called to image Christ. He is called to be the first one to follow Christ. The first one to give that example of Christian living. Right? And his headship doesn't matter except for that. Because that is the only way in which Christ is the head of the church. Right? If we are going to do this by imitating Christ, we can only do it in the ways that Christ did it. So how was Christ the head of the church? He sacrificed himself for the church. He gave himself up entirely for the church. He came down from heaven and took upon himself a human nature for the church, right? Everything that Christ did was self-sacrificial. And so if any guy <clears throat> wants to pull out Ephesians 23, he needs to understand what he is asking in his marriage is that he is always on to be the perfect example of Christ. He is always on for his marriage to be that unshakable rock of the example of Christ. 24. As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. How is the church subordinate to Christ? Well, we follow his example. But we only follow his example because he's Christ. Because he's Christ. Right? We don't do it because he's like... Well, Thanos, right? He doesn't have an infinity gauntlet. Some of you get this reference, and that's okay. 
right? We don't do it because he's some super all-powerful creature, right, who has, who has the ability to command and demand things of us. We do it because he's Christ, because we know that he imaged for us the love of God on the cross, right? And so insofar as we follow Christ, we follow him because of his infinite love for us. That's incredibly important. Husbands love, so now we're on husbands, verse 25. Husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her. I'm sorry, how did Christ love the church? He handed himself over for her. That's how Christ loved the church. 26, to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word. Okay, so what was the point of Christ handing himself over for the church? To sanctify her. To make her pure and holy, right? If you want an image of marriage, right, you hand yourself over for the other person, and you do so for their sanctity, for their holiness. That's the only reason there would be this type of relationship, is so that we can image Christ, so that we can do so for sanctity and holiness. And Paul just expands on that. That he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, again, the church, in her wisdom, looks at this passage, struggles with this passage, works with this passage, doesn't put as much emphasis on this passage as other Christian churches might today. But, if we're going to take this passage seriously, like if we're going to give it a more literal interpretation, everything that Paul has said so far about husbands and wives puts all of the burden on the husband, right? The husband is supposed to model Christ. He is supposed to be the example of Christ. He's supposed to hand himself over as Christ did, and he is supposed to do so for the holiness of his wife. Okay? So far, all of the burden is on the husband. Now, we have a slightly more egalitarian view of marriage, so we would say the wife also has those responsibilities. But if any man ever opens this Bible and points to Ephesians 5, so help me. That is exactly what I'm going to tell him, right? Fine. You want to do Ephesians 5? You have to be the perfect Christ. Right? That is your job. Make that happen. Good luck. So also, so verse 28, so also husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now this is really important. Again, setting up for the domestic violence center, not just for you, but also for the recording, right? So I have to say this. As their own bodies, right? There is nothing that is a more obvious image of a breakdown of a marriage than harming physically the other person in the marriage, right? Paul says, love them as your own bodies, right? Like, it's not as childish to say, stop hitting yourself, right? But, like, you don't hit yourself. You also hit the other person. Right? A true marriage is a one-flesh union. Paul says, love them as your own bodies. You would never do violence to your own body. And he actually doubles down on that, right? He says, for no one hates his own flesh, but rather nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ does the church nourishes and cherishes it because we are members of his body. And then quotes Genesis and then he messes it all up by talking about Christ in the church again. Like, come on, Paul, you're so close. What are you doing? <clears throat> but there it is. That's Ephesians 5. That's generally how we talk about it in the Catholic context. Um, you know, every marriage kind of has to define itself. There could be an argument made, you know, for some sort of Headship, if you want to call it that. But, if there's an argument to be made for that, then it has to be, if you're going to take it literally, then you have to take Paul exactly literally. 
And he's saying that headship only exists insofar as it is the headship of Christ, which is the headship of absolute self-sacrifice, an example of absolute self-giving love. Right? And that is the only context in which the headship exists. Okay. Theological foundation for relationships. Questions? Discussion? I have 15 minutes to fill. Yes? So, um, back in my Well, like I said, everybody can define their own marriage. So if it works for you, there's nothing wrong with that, um, right? <laughs> but the idea is, is that, you know, like when I want to show him that I love him, I'm all like, you know, flowery words and romantic gestures and stuff. And he's like, I don't really care about that stuff. But if you do what I ask you to do, that's what really speaks to me. Right. And then at the same time, I have to remind him, like, hey, you know, flowery words and actual flowers are the things <laughs> on occasion, too. Um, and so it almost seems like you're kind of giving a reminder that, That's a good question, and I'm going to repeat it because I'm vain. <laughs> the question is, when she was in the Protestant church, they talked about the passage, they took it far more literally than I'm taking it. One of the things they said, though, is that, and I'll paraphrase, it seems to hit to the nature of men and women, that generally... Um, men, sorry, generally when a wife wants to show love to her husband, she does so with flowery words and, oh, that's a great idea, honey, and okay, yes, we'll do that. Whereas when a man wants to show love for his wife, he asserts himself in a sense and says, here's a direction, here's a vision that we're going to follow. Okay? And, and she's saying that this works for her marriage, right? One, I think that's fine, right? Like, Everybody can define their own relationships in their marriage. Um, the domestic violence center, the reason we're bringing them in is because there are certain limits that we don't want to cross with those like definitions. There are certain definitions that are unhealthy in a marriage, and that's what they're going to talk about. But up until that line, everybody has a different set of relationships, right? <clears throat> what I would say to that is this passage from Paul didn't come out of nothing, Right? Generally, what we observe, generally, is that in a relationship, men will take more charge than women. And women will follow more than men. Okay? We do observe that. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does that look like in a holy frame of mind versus what does that look like in a sinful frame of mind? Right? What is marked by Eden and what is marked by the fall from Eden? The fall from Eden being marked by, and your desire will be for your husband and he will be your master, which John Paul II said is a result of sin. That is a sinful approach. And so what is the nice compromise between men and women are different and we think differently and we, we operate differently and we recognize that in a marriage and he will be your master, right? There's some compromise between those two statements. There's some way to respect the different natures of men and women without falling into, and he will be your master. Right? 
Everybody has to navigate that on their own. I don't think it's wrong for marriages to come to that conclusion. A lot of marriages have. What the Catholic Church is careful to emphasize, though, is it's not, it's not a generalized rule, right? We are not interpreting subordination as obedience, as, as Bob asked earlier, right? That's not how we're interpreting it. We're interpreting it specifically, as Paul says, relationship of Christ and the church, right? And so if there is a headship, it is a headship of example of Christ giving himself up to the church. Um, and that could appeal to men's warlike nature, right? Again, Catholic Church is very careful not to say exactly what the differences are between men and women, but we can generalize sometimes, and one of them is men seem to be more aggressive, right? We like to go to war. And Christianity has used that really well in our history by emphasizing kind of the, the noble knight going to war for virtue, going to war for, for goodness and truth and whatever, right? Awesome, great. Well, this passage could be great. All right, guys, you want a war to fight? Fight against sin in your own life. Fight against selfishness. Fight against this kind of throwaway culture that Pope Francis talks about all the time. Fight to be the best example of Christ ever for the sake of your marriage, right? That's the fight that we have to give to men in a marriage, right? And that's the kind of headship I think Paul is really talking about. Responses, questions, reflections, contemplations. Very good. Her reflection is simply sacrificial love. That's what I got. Good. If you take one thing from this, sacrificial love is a good thing to take. Now, because I've got a few minutes and I'm going to hold you hostage for those minutes, I'm going to talk about celibacy because I can and it's relevant to my life. Everything we've talked about right now is anthropology. How God created the human person. Okay? Great. Wonderful. Awesome. That is man in what we might call his natural state. Right? A natural state that accounts for both the nature given to us by God and nature as corrupted by sin. Right? We've talked about man in his natural state. We would say that marriage, relationship, sexual relationship is the natural end of man. It is what man is naturally oriented toward because of the way God created us in relationship, because of the way men and women complete each other. That's called sexual complementarity, by the way, if you want another theological term. That's same but different. That's sexual complementarity. Some of the Protestant churches use that phrase as well, and they use it differently, and so I'm careful with that term. But in the Catholic context, same and different. Well, anyway, celibacy, celibacy is supernatural, right? It transcends nature. And so, oh man, live demonstrations. I should really avoid this. My engineering is screaming. Matthew 19, where he talks about marriage and divorce. Oh good, I found it. Praise Jesus. So Jesus just said, you're not allowed to divorce your wives, right? Divorce doesn't exist. Matthew chapter 19, and now we're on verse 10. His disciples said to him, If that is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And now, this is interesting, right? They recognize that marriage is natural, right? And Christ is saying, marriage is natural, divorce is not natural. Divorce was given to you for the hardness of your hearts, which is also Christ saying, divorce was given to you because of sin. Right? It was necessary under the law of Moses because of your sin, 
I am Jesus, I'm going to eradicate sin, marriage in the Christian dispensation doesn't admit for divorce. And so his apostles are like, but we're sinful, nobody should get married. Jesus is like, well, yeah, it is hard. He answered, not all can accept this word. Okay, step one, Jesus is acknowledging marriage is a vocation, not a default state. Not everybody is supposed to get married, right? Unless they can accept this word of Jesus, they're not supposed to get married, right? Ask me, ask me how I know, right? I counsel people a lot, especially people who have left marriages that were never good for them, right? This is why we do marriage counseling before marriage, this pre-marriage encounters. We do a lot of preparation for marriage, maybe not as much as we should, right? Not everybody should get married. Jesus says so. Not all can accept this word, but only those to whom that is granted, only those who are called to marriage. Some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. Some because they were made so by others. Some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this ought to accept it. Now, interesting. We actually have a lot of interesting things in the Catholic Church built off of those three categories. So, some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. Right? This is the best thing that we have to talk about with regard to gender and sexual idolatry, um, not idolatry, that's not the right word, ideology today, okay? Because our teaching is that sex is intended in a heterosexual union oriented toward children, okay? That's the point of sex. Great, fine. And so our teaching is if you feel like you're called to a relationship with somebody of the same sex, fine, explore that curiosity intellectually, <clears throat> emotionally, and spiritually. Live a deep intimacy with that person. Just don't make the relationship sexual, right? Don't get married. Don't make it sexual. Well, that might be the people that Christ is talking about, because they were born so. There are people in this discussion who claim to be asexual. They're not sexually attracted to anything or anybody. Fine. They were born so. It's okay to be born so. It's okay to be born in such a way that you are not called to marriage. That's okay. Jesus recognizes that. He loves that. He's acknowledging that in the scriptures 2,000 years ago, right? Others because they were made so, or some because they were made so by others, right? Eh, he's probably talking about um, castration there, right? Castration was a pretty common thing in the ancient world. So they were made so by others, right? Somebody did something to a person that they can't get married anymore. In the Catholic Church, when I do the pre-marriage interview, I have to ask the question, basically the summary of the question is, can you physically have sex with the other person, right? And if they answer no, I'm not allowed to let them get married. Because having sex is necessary for marriage. And if they can't physically have sex with the other person, I'm not allowed to let them get married, right? And so, who knows why they can't have sex? Maybe it's because somebody did that to them, right? Well, Jesus is saying right here, well, it was done to you, I'm sorry, but you're not called to marriage either. And then the last category is, because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Again, that would be the celibate category. Celibates renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We do so as an example. Because marriage is so natural, even if not everybody is called to it, certainly not everybody is called to Christian marriage because it's so hard and requires grace. But, because, we, because marriage is so natural, by renouncing marriage, and especially in such a sexualized culture as today, by renouncing sex, I get people's attention. Right? A lot of times, people who are not Catholic, the only thing they know about a priest, a Catholic priest, is that we don't get married. 
that is always the first question I ask. And some of them are, are more suave about it than others, but some of them are awkwardly like, uh, so you can't get married, huh? And I'm like, that's correct. <laughs> any, any more questions? Um, but that's what it is. I get people's attention because I've renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I cannot do so without grace. Because to renounce marriage is a supernatural act. Marriage is natural. To renounce marriage is supernatural. I would say the same thing about those who are born so and those who are made so. They need grace, right? We should be praying for people who want to live out, who are same-sex attracted, who want to live the Catholic teachings. It is a very hard life, especially in the culture today. We should be praying for these people. We should help them live a life where they can come to the sacraments and receive those graces. So, all of us need supernatural grace. That's important. But especially, right, those who renounce it for the sake of the kingdom, because they're doing so as an evangelical witness, to say, I'm giving this up because it's crazy, and I want you to know that I'm crazy. Crazy for Jesus. Right? But that's what we're saying. Right? And so that's why celibacy, even though we are, again, to tie it all back together, we are created in relationship. Being in relationship is in the image of God. I'm not called not to be in relationship, right? I am in relationship, especially with my parishioners, and that's an important part of my life. I'm in relationship with my family, with my friends, right? Relationships are important. I am not called to be in a sexual relationship. But, like Genesis said, the culmination of the man-woman creation is a sexual relationship. It is marriage, right? That is the culmination. I have renounced that culmination for the sake of the kingdom of God. Right? It's primarily an evangelical witness that is very precious to the Catholic Church. Now, Martin Luther did not believe that. One of the things that Luther said and did early on that all of the Protestants followed along with was, normal people get married. Right? If you are not married, there's something wrong with you. It was actually Luther's followers that pressured him into that. Um, he wasn't going to get married for a while because he was a, a monk. He was a priest, even? He's definitely a monk. Might have been a priest. Um, he wasn't getting married, right? He made a vow. He was used to being celibate, and that was kind of his thing. And then they basically forced him to get married because it became a cornerstone of the Protestant <laughs> Revolution, which was normal people get married, right? Celibacy is odd and weird and stupid, and you've got to get rid of it. Normal people get married. And so they pressured Luther into it, and he eventually got married. And then, because it's Luther, once he decides on something, he, his polemic gets really angry. He starts really angry things about celibacy later. But not early. Um, so, anyway, for Protestants, including my Protestant family, normal people get married, right? And that's what they told me when I told them I was going to be a priest. Well, we're getting past that. It's fine. Okay, any questions about that? Yes? Ooh, somebody's quoting scripture at me. Here we go. <laughs> It is good for man and woman to become one flesh. So, I'm wondering how that's 
Yeah, the church has um, struggled with this for a long time. For most of church history, because theologian, because theology is generally written by celibates, <clears throat> they've interpreted this passage as saying celibacy is absolutely the best vocation, and marriage is a secondary vocation that's necessary, but whatever. Um, John Paul II really advanced that. He really put his foot down on that and said, no, marriage is a sacramental vocation given by God of equal dignity. What I would point you to in Corinthians is verse 6. This I say by way of concession, however, not as a command. Indeed, I wish everyone to be as I am, but each has a particular gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so Paul does this in multiple places here, and I know there's another place I wish... I was good enough for scripture to tell you where. But sometimes he'll tell us, this is my opinion, right? This is my opinion, this is not from Christ. This is my opinion. And, and I believe that this is one of those places where he is offering legitimate advice rather than theology. Because he's writing to a particular community who have asked him particular questions about particular needs. Now, Paul believed that celibacy was necessary for preaching the gospel. And I think Paul did believe that it was the better vocation, Right? Um, personally, I believe he believed that. I don't think Scripture requires us to believe that. I, I think this passage is good, and it points out the good things about celibacy, why it's important, why it was important to Paul. But the fact that he gives them permission to marry, the fact that he gives advice to husbands and wives in Ephesians without any of this context, indicates to us that this was probably an answer to a specific question. Again, the title of this section of the Bible, according to the NAB, is Answers to the Corinthians Questions. Right, so he was probably answering a specific question, similar to women should pray with their heads covered, right? We don't require that anymore, because we think it was Paul answering a specific question to a specific church. We think there's wisdom in how he answered it, um, there's wisdom in what he says, and I think his discussions of celibacy are great. Um, certainly where he talks about why it's important, right? Um, an unmarried man or an unmarried woman is focused on the things of God, whereas a married man or a married woman are focused on pleasing their spouse and their heart is divided, right? He's not wrong about that. He's not wrong about that. It doesn't mean marriage is of a lesser dignity as a vocation. It does mean, though, if you're going to preach the gospel as like your entire life, it's much easier to be celibate because it's much easier to stay focused on God, right? Married people do have to be concerned with the world. At Vatican II, the church owned that. The church basically said, yeah, they're concerned with the world, and that's good because that's their vocation, right? That their vocation is to be concerned with the world because God is concerned with the world. And so married people are concerned with the world. I, as a celibate, am concerned with the church, right? I'm concerned with you, and you are concerned with everybody else, right? So if anybody comes to me who's not a parishioner, I just wash my hands and send them to you. Your job, not mine, suckers. Although you're no picnic in the park either, so. Oh, I mean, not present company excluded, of course. Of course. So, We really wish we had their letter to him, right? And, and there are a lot of books of, of New Testament theology. Oh, I didn't repeat the question. We're talking about 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> so, uh,. Yeah, and so your question is, do we know what the Corinthians' questions to Paul were? We only know the ones that he repeats. And he does repeat their questions sometimes. And there are books of New Testament commentary that try to reconstruct what those questions are. But it's just hard for us to know. Yes, Bob? Were all the disciples Uh Very few of them were. Um, we know that Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law. 
Um, in fact, we don't know about the rest of the apostles. John was celibate. Um, that's pretty clear from the scriptural accounts um, and the tradition of the church. But we think John was probably the only celibate of the apostles, of the twelve apostles. Um, and then celibacy in the church has developed, it developed in a very interesting way. It mostly developed from purity laws. So mostly it was the fact that, okay, fine, you're married, but if you're going to celebrate the Mass, don't have sex the night before. Right? That's generally how it developed. Um, there are a lot of things related to that. This is this raised, the recording can't hear me, but I'm entering into the sanctuary. This raised part of the church is called the sanctuary. For many, many centuries, and still in some Christian churches, women are not allowed in the sanctuary. Okay? For whatever reason, I don't know, we can get there. It has to do with male ordination, we can get there too. I don't know. But anyway. For a long time, that was true in the Catholic Church. We weren't allowed to have women altar service until the 80s, the 1980s, for that reason, because women were not allowed in the sanctuary. Similarly, there is a document that is still operative. Don't tell my choirs. They will not like to hear this. But this document from 1967, which is still in effect, says, you know, if the choir is not in the loft, if the choir is in the sanctuary, then it can contain no women. If the choir has women in it, it can't be in the sanctuary. Because, in 1967, we still had the rule that women are not allowed to be in the sanctuary during Mass. Okay? So we have some weird stuff around that that the Church is still reconciling itself to. But, to your question about celibacy, you weren't supposed to have sex before you celebrated the Mass, right? So, that was fine when you only had Mass on Sunday, but then in the Western Church over time, uh, we started having daily Mass. And so married priests were never allowed to have sex with their wives, right? Because you had mass every day. Uh, the Eastern Church, right? One of the reasons why they're more okay with married clergy is because they only have mass on Sunday. They don't have a daily mass. <clears throat> so, over time, it became the law of continence, not celibacy. Continence is not having sex. Celibacy is not getting married, okay? Continence. So, as early as the 300s AD, we have rules in certain countries or certain regions of the Roman Empire that require that all clerics be continent. They can get married, they can be married when they're clergy, but they can't have sex with their wives ever again, right? So the wife kind of had to be on board if their husband was going to get ordained. Sometimes that eventually evolved into, sometimes the wives would join a convent when their husband got ordained, right? They would kind of split. And that happened in the Eastern Church for a while, too. Um, and then eventually, over time, that just became, don't get married at all, right? It's a disservice to the women, really. Don't get married at all. Um, and that's how we develop clerical celibacy in the church today, right? The law of continence isn't really on the books because um, the law of celibacy in the Western church has been normative since the 1100s. And so we just haven't asked questions about married clergy anymore, right? So I can't speak about our pastor. I don't want to know about our pastor. But the law that I talked about in the early 400s is not operative anymore, okay? Um, Today, it became the law of celibacy, and now we have certain very limited exceptions to the law of celibacy that the bishops themselves deal with. We're less worried about sex making people dirty. Cool. All right, that's enough. That's an hour and 38 minutes, so I appreciate your time and attention. Uh, I do encourage you to come to the Domestic Violence Center presentation. I'll be here. I'm interested in what they have to say. They've already presented to our Spanish community, and I want to hear it in English because I don't understand it in Spanish. Um, but I think it's going to give us a lot of tips just for what a healthy relationship looks like. That's what I asked them to present about. They're not going to talk about domestic violence. They're really just going to talk about what is healthy relationship dynamics. 
Um, and please, if you could, invite a friend, because I don't want to look silly in front of the domestic violence center. So the more people we have, the better I look. And I am very, very vain. Okay? Very vain. So thank you again for your attention and your love of the faith.